Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Graham Gudgeon, Research Associate at the Centre for Business Research. Simon Deacon, Graham Gudgeon, thanks for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. We're going to look ahead to the choices facing the British economy on Brexit in 2017 and to how the economy might fare over the next 12 months. Simon, what are the choices decision makers face on Brexit and can you explain the difference between them? There's talk of being a member of the EEA, the Customs Union, bilateral trade deals such as Switzerland has, or we could abide by the World Trade Organization rules. That's quite a range of choices. It may be easiest to think of this, first of all, in terms of the two extremes. In one extreme version of a post-Brexit world, we stay inside the European economic area, which essentially means being subject to the rules of the single market and subject to not necessarily the European Court of Justice, but to the EFTA court. So there would be some external judicial constraints upon the UK. The advantage of that would be that we pretty much carry on as we have been trading with other EU member states. There is free movement of labour and capital. So depending on your view on Brexit and what it was really about, it's either a good option or a bad option. At the other extreme, there's no particular arrangement any longer with the EU. We're not in the single market and we're not in the customs union. We fall back upon WTO rules. That's a minimalist option post-Brexit. We're then in the same position as most third countries outside Europe. Nearly every European country is either in the single market or the customs union. Turkey is in the customs union but not the single market. Now in between those two extremes there are a number of options. Switzerland is not part of the European economic area but has a number of bilateral trade deals with the EU. All these are conditional though to some degree on Switzerland following rules concerning free movement of labour, freedom of capital. The customs union is important to distinguish between that and the single market. Being in the single market means basically conforming to a number of rules and regulations concerning product standards and other rules. Customs union membership implies having a single external tariff and not doing deals with third countries on trade. So that Turkey option, if we were to go for that, would mean we're not bound by rules and regulations created in Brussels, but we wouldn't have the freedom to do deals with third countries. The sticking point is those rules bring with them free movement of people. And it's credited that immigration and concerns over immigration led to the Brexit vote in the UK. So which of those options would free the government from having to abide by rules that allow free movement of people? It doesn't seem possible to be in the EEA and avoid rules on free movement of labour or of capital, because so far the European Union position has been that membership of the single market in this sense is indivisible. You either accept the four freedoms or you don't. You can't, as it were, cherry pick. Now, they could, of course, change their minds and they could agree to a Swiss-style option whereby you have some elements of free movement, but they're modified somewhat. Although it has to be said again, in the Swiss case, they've had to sign up to most aspects of free movement of labour and free movement of capital as a precondition of getting access to the single market. In order to avoid completely the rules on free movement of labour and free movement of capital, it's highly likely that the UK would have to be outside the EEA. Now, it could still sign up to the customs union. Turkey isn't subject to the rules on free movement of labour, for example, nor is the EU required to accept free movement from Turkey into the European Union. So that's an option that the UK government could pursue, but then it wouldn't have the freedom to do trade deals with third countries, which it has said so far it wants to have. That's why the Department for International Trade was brought back. And the WTO rules, do they bring with them free movement of people? No. WTO rules do not in any way require member states to accept free movement of labour. They do, however, contain some rules which are a little bit like EU rules on things like state aids. Under WTO rules, it's not possible to subsidise enterprise. In 
a way that artificially distorts international trade. Under certain circumstances, it's also possible under the rules of the WTO for a WTO state, which receives migrant labour from another state, not to put conditions on the use of that labour in the, as it were, host state. Now, this therefore means that to some degree, even under WTO rules, there are some sensitive issues around the application of local labour standards to migrant workers. But these rules are not as strict as those applying under EU law. And critically, EU law rules are easily enforceable under domestic law because they form part of our domestic law, and our own courts enforce them, and the ECJ can basically override our own courts. With the WTO, that's not possible. We are bound in international law to respect WTO standards, but international law is not part of UK domestic law, and international law obligations can't be enforced in the same way as European law obligations can be. It takes a lot to unravel these four different options, but given we're looking at the impact of Brexit on the British economy in 2017, is there one of these four options, EEA, the customs union, bilateral trade deals or the WTO rules that are better for the British economy than the other? Or is the complexity of them a problem in that we're just guessing at this stage. Graham can talk more about the economic implications of all these different options, but from my point of view as a lawyer and somebody interested in institutional analysis, I would say that there's actually quite a lot of uncertainty at the moment about how the options would work out institutionally. Lawyers will be able to tell us, I I can tell you, what the general framework is in each of these four options, EEA, Customs Union, Swiss Option, WTO Option. We need to know more about the detail of how the government will wish to conduct its negotiations with the EU, and we need to know more about the EU's own position going forward. And there are many issues at the moment to which we don't have a clear answer because there are legal complexities and there are things we actually need to research more deeply in order to get a fuller picture. So at the moment, we do have knowledge, of course. We can sketch out broadly what happens in each of these various options, but I think there's actually a case for more research to be done on this. And as the process of negotiation and deliberation unfolds over the next two years and beyond, because there won't be a new trade deal two years from now, it's most unlikely anyway, new issues will come up. And actually, we don't know yet all the issues which may crop up at sector level. Particular industries may have particular issues that need to be worked through. Particular companies may raise points about state aids. We don't yet have a complete set of answers to this question. And we will still be bound by European laws while that two years of negotiation goes on. So perhaps some critics of Brexit might say it's best to have a soft landing and abide by the EEA rules. Would you agree with that? Well, we're certainly bound by European law in full until we leave. We're bound under international law to maintain the treaties which we've signed up to until we depart from them. Under domestic law, until the European Communities Act is repealed, we must apply EU law. And even after the repeal, many of the same provisions will be replicated within UK law under the so-called Great Repeal Act, the government's promised to introduce. Until we leave, we're still part of the European Union, we're part of EU law. Now, your point about a soft Brexit, there is debate, of course, about a so-called transitional agreement, and that could mean staying in the EEA while things are worked out. But as far as I can tell, there's no obligation on the side of the EU to offer us a transitional deal. They may decide to, but this would have to be a bespoke arrangement. I don't think it's exactly provided for at the moment under the EU treaties. It remains to be seen whether that sort of soft Brexit, soft landing, is even possible. 
If it is possible, let's see what's put on the table after negotiations between the UK and the EU. But this is just yet another uncertainty that we need to think carefully about. We need to think carefully about institutionally, how would that work, in order then to get a better understanding of what the economic effects of Brexit will be. Until we get a better institutional grasp of these issues, it's very, very hard, actually, to predict the economic effects. So more research is urgently needed. I think we do need independent research to be carried out on this question, because so far, most of the research that's been done or the work that's been done on this has been done by one or other side of the Brexit arguments. These have been arguments put forward by groups like economists for Brexit who are partisan. On the other hand, the government has its own researchers and of course what's produced by the civil service or by the House of Commons Library is objective high quality research. What's done by the OBR is independent economic forecasting. But I still think there's a very important role for independent university-based research in this process of deliberation, in this process of finding out what's going on. Graham. You've just published an economic paper making forecasts for the next year, 2017. Are you optimistic about the UK economy and what impact will Brexit have, whatever type of lending we have, soft, hard? Yes, first thing to say, out of the options that Simon's just outlined, it seems to me that there are only probably two practical options. One is a free trade agreement in the long run, similar to the one Canada has just signed, or else no agreement on trade, in which case you fall back on World Trade Organization rules. The impact of both of those is pretty uncertain. We've looked very carefully at what the Treasury has has said about this, and we find that we're very flawed, very partisan piece of work, really, rather than an objective piece of work. Therefore, I'd agree very much with Simon that we need some objective academic work on this. The whole debate is coloured by a lot of hyperbolic results anyway. Rather looks to us as if the short-term impact, well, we've had six months. The Treasury said there would be four quarters of recession. We should have been in recession by now. We're absolutely not. Everything's fine. Maybe a bit delayed. But the whole succession of investment announcements we've had from Nissan, Microsoft and others suggests that companies are taking a much more sanguine view of this than the government like to suggest. Or we may be giving Nissan illegal state aid. They may have had promises which can't be made to others. It may just be a honeymoon period of Brexit. We don't know at the moment. We try to look at this by looking at what degree of currency depreciation you'd need to offset the 10% tariff that Nissan could face under World Trade Organization rules. And the, the answer to us, we haven't done deep research on this, but just looking at it, it looks like a 15% depreciation of sterling would offset a 10% tariff. But we've already had a 12% depreciation. I mean, we're pretty well there. And I think that's probably what the government was betting on, in a sense. So the government can quite rightly say, oh, we didn't promise them any money at all. And everybody else says, well, you must promise them something. It's the currency depreciation which really bridges that gap. Could we just go back? In terms of the four options Simon outlined, you don't think the EEA and the customs union are likely to materialise. We're not going to opt for either of those two of the four options. No, I think Theresa May has said very clearly that there will be control over migration. I think she rightly recognises that that was the key point in the referendum. Any resiling on that would cause a great deal of political problems. And the EEA and Customs Union involve free movement of labour? Yes, and the Swiss bilateral treaties. As you may know, the Swiss have got themselves into a real tangle because they've had a referendum as well, where the Swiss voters said, no, 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 we don't want free movement. But all of their trade agreements are dependent on free movement. So the politicians have had to sort of wriggle and worm their way through this. They propose something at the end, which isn't really free movement of labour. So there's big problems in Switzerland. I think that just shows how difficult the messy Swiss approach to this is. That's probably not an option. 
So your Canadian option is a fifth option from the one Simon outlined. Yes, it's a free trade agreement. I mean, any country can, in principle, have a free trade agreement with any other, with the EU. The EU actually hasn't been very good at having free trade agreements. It doesn't have a free trade agreement with China or with the US. It's not really a free trade agreement. And this is one of the points that the economists for Brexit make. Their opposition to the EU is not that it's a free trade organisation, but that it's a highly protectionist organisation. They're free traders, in a sense, which I don't think either Simon or I are. We, We wouldn't be sympathetic that. But they make a good point in, in that the EU is fairly protectionist. But it does have some free trade agreements, and most recently it's had one with Canada. And if they have one with Canada, I mean, good heavens, you know, they, they're really saying they wouldn't have one with the UK. If we go back to your new economic forecast, 2017, run us through some of the stats, inflation, unemployment, growth rates, you're quite middle of the road, quite optimistic. As you said, it's not all going to crash around us. We get more optimistic as each week goes by because so little of the project fear has actually materialised. It may be that companies haven't cut their investment yet because their plans have been in train for quite a while. And it may be that they do cut their investment next year. We're counting on the fact they probably will. But the big question is by how much. And again, as time goes on, we're tending to reduce the amount of reductions of investment. We think 2017 won't be a great year, but on the other hand, growth in GDP probably between 1% and 1.5%, rather than the 2% that it might have been without Brexit. And it could easily be the whole 2%. We really don't know because we don't really know what companies' intentions are. GDP slowing, but not too bad. The big thing that was predicted and has happened is the depreciation of sterling, 10 12% bounces around a bit, but something of that order. That will give us inflation. Inflation is starting to rise. We think by the end of next year, it'll be around about 3%. So it'd be higher than it's been for some years. Most countries around the world have been trying to increase their inflation, at least get it up to 2%. And they've been trying to get their secretly, surreptitiously sometimes, trying to get their exchange rates down relative to other countries. So we've managed this in one bound by having a Brexit referendum. The big question is, does inflation get out of hand? And we think it won't. We think it'll peak just a bit over 4% and then start to fall again. But those are the big things. Slower growth, more inflation, lower currency, therefore higher cost of imported goods. And higher cost of living for workers, because if you've got higher inflation and their wages aren't growing, and I presume their wages aren't going to grow, then consumer spending is likely to fall. Yes, this is a very good point, and this is a real controversy. There's a widespread view in economics that there's a 2% pay norm, that companies will give their workers a 2% increase, come what may, independent of what's happening to prices. I've never understood where this iron law comes from. Our equations tell us that wages will start to rise as prices rise. We're pretty close to full employment now. There's quite a lot of bargaining power. And interestingly, last week, the Bank of England published its forecast for wages. Ours would be rather similar to theirs. Wage rises rising to something like 3% by the end of next year. If we look at your economic modelling, which, as you say, you've just published, it's called the UK MOD method. It's different from the Treasury's forecasting, which you've just been critical of, and they more often quote the OBR model. How is it different? And do we know which one is more reliable? We've gone to the huge effort of building a whole new model because of dissatisfaction with what's out there, and particularly with the OBR, official government model. It's independent of the government, but it's it's essentially a treasury model. And that's really not a separate forecast in any normal sense. It's really an assumption about productivity growth. They assume, for instance, that labour productivity will grow at about 2% per annum, and everything else follows from that. Now, the average growth in productivity over the last decade has been zero. They're always optimistic that the bad times are past, you know, good times are going to roll from next year. And then they have to massage everything else to fit this overarching productivity 
assumption. And the thing they tend to massage is business investment. And if you look at their forecast, business investment always does great. It grows very fast for the next few years in each forecast. Then that doesn't happen, and then they roll it forward into the, the next forecast. Now, I don't mind them doing this. I mean, it's fair enough just to make an assumption. But the trouble is the whole of the media treated it as if it's some sort of gold standard forecast. And they really ought to be saying, look, if you assume this, then, okay, the government's books may balance in five years' time, inflation may do X, and unemployment may do Y. But on the other hand, if you assume something else for productivity, then other things will happen. It's really a fairly crude assumption of, of that sort. And it's very frustrating to read the Financial Times or listen to the BBC and say, well, this is what will happen to government finances by 2019. You think, well, yeah, that's what happened if you make that assumption. But if you if you don't, it won't. And it never does. It never has. I mean, the governments always miss their targets. And your modelling, we don't know if it's more reliable, but it produces a different result. It is just based on the facts and on economic behaviour in the UK over the last few decades. We don't do anything else. We make equations for relationships. For instance, the relationship between household incomes and household consumer spending. Just look at that for the last, say, 30 years. What does the equation tell us, then we roll that forward. Now, we have to make some assumptions about the future, about world trade, about American interest rates, about oil prices, for instance. And the forecasts are clearly dependent on those assumptions, and we make that very clear. It's the conditional forecasts. But it's not conditional in the sense that the OBR is conditional on a single sweeping assumption. Simon, we've heard Graham talk quite optimistically about the UK economy in 2017 with his new UK MOD method of modelling. The world didn't fall apart, perhaps as George Osborne, then the Chancellor, had predicted before the vote to Brexit happened. But Graham wanted us to Brexit. You didn't. Are you surprised that the economy has held up? I think that the issue here it involves thinking about long-term and short-term effects. The, the CBR model, which Graham and Ken have developed, does show some negative effect of the referendum vote, although the rate of growth is nothing like that of the Treasury model. As Graham has just explained, I think that GDP growth might be a bit slower next year than it would have been, but for the, the referendum vote. So I think there's been a, a welcome injection of reality into this discussion. It's good to have a model which doesn't depend upon inbuilt assumptions, but is using empirical data from recent past experience to generate forecasts. I think that's essentially the correct approach. What we should be doing now is taking a step back from some of the sound and fury of the referendum debates and making the best objective assessment we can of how we go forward from here. And that does mean taking a keen analytical look at all the different options and seeing how they would play out in economic terms. The case I wanted to make and did make for Remain wasn't mostly based on economic considerations, but on legal and constitutional implications of Brexit. And we just don't really know yet how that will play out. It's very unclear what sort of constitution we might be going back to once we leave the EU. That was a source of my view that, that Remain was the best option, not the economic arguments. We don't know what the Supreme Court judges are going to decide about the legal challenge to Brexit. They will release their judgment in January sometime. People know about the economic uncertainties. Do you think people have underestimated the effect of the legal uncertainties on the UK economy? Can legal uncertainties cause difficulties with corporates 
and how they operate throughout the world, and in turn for the UK economy, because it is uncertain. As far as the UK domestic law is concerned, the repeal bill that's been suggested would, to begin with, basically reenact all of EU law as UK domestic law, or at least the relevant parts, and then different bits of it would be selectively removed over time. Now, that process is, is complicated, but ultimately completely manageable, it seems to me. And the UK Supreme Court, when it decides the Article 50 case, won't be deciding whether or not Brexit occurs. Indeed, the MPs have recently voted by resolution to support the triggering of Article 50. So it seems to me that the Supreme Court case won't even decide that. It will have implications going forward for the UK's constitution, and in particular for the relationship between Westminster and the devolved parliaments and assemblies. But that's a separate issue. That case is extremely important for the UK's constitution, not so important as I see it uh, any longer for Brexit, if indeed it ever was that important for Brexit itself. The bigger issue is what will the UK's trading position look like one year after Brexit, five years, ten years after? That's the, the critical issue on which there is still a great deal of uncertainty. The current government position really does rule out an EEA-style deal and also would make it extremely difficult to stay inside the customs union because then we couldn't do third-party deals. If we are to have a Canadian-type free trade agreement, then it would be within the framework of WTO law. WTO law provides for a certain number of rules and regulations, and indeed constraints, which will be placed upon our ability to do a deal with the EU. What do you think the impact of the most favoured nation principle will be for Brexit in the UK? The most favoured nation principle is part of WTO law, and it basically means that if a country like the UK, if it were outside the EU, if it offered other countries a good deal on tariffs, unless it had a preferential trade agreement with a particular bloc like the European Union, it would have to offer the same preferential deal under the most favoured nation clause to all nations. And what this means in effect is that until we have a new trade deal with the EU, we only have limited room to manoeuvre on the tariff arrangements we can make both with the EU and with other nations. We must conform to this basic rule of non-discrimination. Discrimination is only permitted once we have a preferential trade agreement under WTO rules with a trading bloc or with a third country like Canada or the United States. So does the most favoured nation principle tie our hands in the UK? The, the practical effect is that it's possible, this, this remains to be seen how it'll actually work out in detail, but it's possible that if we say on day one after Brexit that we wish to maintain the tariff deal we have with the EU, once we're outside the EU, we're bound by the most favoured nation principle. So that rather generous deal under which there really are almost, in, in effect, no tariffs between us and the EU, if we offer that to the EU, we must offer that to everybody, and that really is a constraint, because at the moment we do have tariffs which protect our industry and agriculture from certain forms of trading competition with third countries. So that rules out the WTO option? It doesn't rule it out, but it, it is a problem. The, the problem arises if we don't have a preferential trade agreement with the EU day one after Brexit. Then our room for manoeuvre is, in practice, limited by WTO rules. WTO rules are not a blank slate. They don't permit us to do whatever we like. So although there's been much discussion about taking back control if we leave the EU, we don't completely have freedom of manoeuvre once we leave the EU, but stay within the WTO. There are rules we must conform to while we're in the WTO. These include particularly the rules about the most favoured nation clause. We should also bear in mind that doing bilateral trade deals isn't easy. As Graham says, the EU itself has a poor record on doing these deals. And we might imagine it will take at least as long to get a, a deal between the UK and the EU, probably, as it did between the EU and Canada, which is uh, several years, maybe up to a decade. We simply don't know. Now, what happens in the meantime, again, 
there'll be a great deal of uncertainty about that. Tariffs is one issue, rules of origin, that's another issue. And then there's a wider question of how far the UK diverges in regulatory terms from the rest of the EU if we're no longer part of the EEA or bound by single market rules. All these are uncertainties, it, it seems to me. They're not a reason to oppose Brexit. That decision has been taken in the referendum. There'll be a Brexit, we assume. That's what everybody is now, I think, agreeing on. Nearly everybody inside Parliament, nearly everybody. There'll be a Brexit, but on what terms will it be? And what are the implications of these different institutional options as that process unfolds? That, to me, is still an element of considerable legal uncertainty. Well, we know the Liberal Democrats would, in the next general election, campaign for membership of the EU. And, Simon, the impact of uncertainty on the economy? There's always uncertainty in a market economy, but the issue here is whether we've got some bad uncertainty, an institutional uncertainty, which is going to affect investment plans. The argument about uncertainty leading to lower growth may have been somewhat overstated, both before the referendum vote by the Treasury and possibly subsequently. I'm more worried about the long-term effects of this debate. Are we going to be able to move the UK from being a low-wage, low-productivity economy to one in which we have full employment, which, as Graham explained, we do have, but full employment with decent work as well? That, to my mind, is the bigger issue facing the UK. It's a bigger issue, in a way, than whether we stay inside the EEA, for example, or not. I'd like to get a better understanding myself of where Brexit may take us in that debate. Are we heading towards a low regulation, but also then even more precarious work, low-cost economy? Or can we use the opportunity of Brexit to fundamentally reorientate the British economy to be one based on sustainable growth and decent work? Uncertainty, Graham. If we roll on 12 months and all of your economic modelling has come to pass, we're then going from 2017 into 2018, and we're still in the same space. We haven't decided how the UK economy is going to Brexit. Would that uncertainty eventually hit your economic statistics? Well, presumably as time rolls on, we'll get a better and surer indication of what the long run is going to be like. The problem here is when we get more certainty, there may be quite a few companies and people who, who don't like what they see. You know, Uncertainty may be helping us a, a little bit because there's uncertainty about the bad things from companies' point of view, as well as the beneficial aspects. There are some companies that will depend on being inside the EU. Quite a lot of those are actually in finance and other professional services. I suspect that these companies will need an office inside the EU. They may now need an office in Frankfurt and they'll now spend half the time in, in London. There'll be a flexibility of that sort. This is going to end with a whimper rather than a bang. And so the Centre for Business Research modelling in terms of economics and law is unique. You do have a different approach from others. Well, as far as I know, we're the only people who are really trying to reproduce what the Treasury did. They had a so-called gravity model approach to this. It's the amount of trade depends on how big your trading partner is and how far away they are, that sort of thing. We've reproduced this, but in a more sensible way. We just can't get the big impacts that they, that they found. I mean, I think this is going to be a big controversy. There's a big underlying question here, just how independent are government economists and, and perhaps government experts in, in other areas. We're going to have to look at this at some point. Simon, the CBR, a unique approach? We've always tried to bring together lawyers and economists as long as we've been a research centre for nearly 25 years now. And of course, we're building on a longer tradition in Cambridge of this sort of work in the Department of Applied Economics. So yes, that's what we do. Well, thank you very much, Simon Deacon, Graham Gudgeon. Thanks for talking to the CBR podcast series today on the outlook for the UK economy post-Brexit in 2017. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie. (laughs) 